Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another live episode of The Yield. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you enjoy the content. In case you haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr, and I'm the Director of Product Marketing here at YieldTreat. Today, I'm joined by David Kronfeld, an experienced venture capital investor who founded JKMB Capital in 1996 and is the author of Remarkable, a Wall Street Journal bestseller on how to accelerate your career. David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me as a guest. Yeah, of course. We're excited to have you. For those of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar or haven't seen the book yet, Perhaps you could start by giving everyone a bit of an overview of your background and sort of really what led you to write the book, Remarkable. Yeah, thank you. A little bit of a background, just for perspective. Uh, I'm an immigrant to this country, came here to go to college, earned two degrees, bachelor in electrical engineering and a master's in computer science. Right after school, I went to work for, at the time, what was a startup company called EDS, uh, Electronic Data Systems Corporation it became a very large company. Subsequently, I was hired away from EDS and became a vice president in an IT department for systems development for another conglomerate, at which point I decided to change my career from being an IT person and a technical person to uh, being a business person. And I went to Wharton, got an MBA degree. After the degree, I joined a consulting firm by the name of Booz Allen and Hamilton. I'm sure most of your audience will, uh, will be familiar with the name. I was a consultant for quite a long time, uh, consulting large corporations mainly, board of directors, CEOs in uh, corporate strategy issues and competitive issues, marketing issues. When at and was broken up, I joined uh, one of the baby bells, Ameritech in the Midwest, I was the vice president in charge of merger acquisition and venture investments on behalf of a company. And five years subsequently, I left the firm to join an independent venture capital group. And five years subsequently, I started JKMB Capital, as you suggested, in 1996, and have been in the industry ever since. So if you look at the time frame, I started in the venture capital business in the early 1980s which at this point, it makes me kind of one of the grandfathers of the industry. <laughs> so, so, I mean, obviously, that's a, that's a wealth of experience. And, you know, maybe you could also just quickly discuss, um, you know, what, what sort of the main themes are of the book Remarkable, because it seems as though you probably were able to apply a lot of your own learnings through your own career, um, and then also probably learn some new ones along the way. And, and how did that help you kind of come up with the idea? 
correct. Interesting perspective is to allow me a little bit of aggression. When I came to the United States, I barely spoke the language. And my ability to communicate clearly uh, was not all that great. Uh, I come from a different culture, which is a little different from the American culture. So people would have considered me to be quite pushy at the time. I was very efficient, oriented person, business oriented person. My interpersonal skills weren't all that great. Uh, so presumably I uh, would have not done all that well in corporate career environment, but I did very well. And I attribute it all, and people who and peer who know me very well will, will, will confirm that, to what I call being more insightful than the common successful person. So, so the insightfulness is what I attribute to my success. Now, how did I become more insightful is an interesting story. Some of it perhaps is innate capability, but more importantly, I made all the mistakes a foreigner and, and somebody who starts in the business can make without good interpersonal skills and with poor communication skills, uh, including just ability to articulate things. So in order for me to succeed, I had to really understand what made me fail, what stood as an obstacle in front of me, and what made me successful. And to learn that, I have to understand what in general makes people fail, what makes them succeed, what is better and what is worse. So I started observing things at a completely different level because it was a self-survival for me without understanding all those nuances, as I call them, without understanding what really happens, where the rubber hits the road. Uh, I, I would have been destined to an average career at best. That understanding gave me a perspective, which is uniquely different, I believe. And when I applied it for myself, that's when I became much more successful over time. And uh, as part of uh, you know the genesis of the book, and you ask how this book came about, uh, over the years, I gave advice to my daughter, uh, who became successful on her own right. But she became convinced that my, what she called insight, in the advice that I gave her regarding career and how to accelerate your career and how to do well in a, in, in a business environment uh, was very meaningful and significant to her. And she, she said it was very different, but very meaningful. And she wanted me to write it on paper so she can share it with her literally grandchildren and other family members. It took her a while to convince me to do it, but I did it. And I wrote everything which I considered to be truly insight. So I strictly focused on the insightful things, not the common things, but the insightful things that will make one a top performer. And I put it on paper when Beth read the manuscript that I put together, she took it to a publisher and they were convinced that this is something that, that would benefit a much wider range of audiences. And so the book was published and, and hopefully it will provide value, not just to my family members, but to other people who could benefit. Well, of course, and, and we obviously uh, encourage everyone to, to, to take a look at the book and obviously um, try to you know, uh, apply some of those learnings from the book in their own careers. But I'm curious, you talk so much about insightfulness and maybe you know, there's an example that you could provide of that insightfulness that maybe is part of the book or maybe something that didn't make it into the book. Um, that does differ maybe some from, from some of the common wind, wisdom that most people end up applying to their careers. Right. So the book is a huge 400 pages book full of insightful <laughs> things. And there are hundreds of different insightful observations. It's difficult to bring one up and as an example. But however, let me try and give you a sense of what the book is in a way that will describe how this book and how the word insightful and insightfulness is used differently than perhaps 
other advice you may get or other books you may get when telling you how to become successful. And I'll kind of play a little bit of a role here to, to demonstrate that. So if one were to read other books, or if one would go for a person who is experienced, who has done well, and ask him, what are the key to success? Can you tell me what are the kind of things that I should do to make me successful in business? Which is the common advice that one seeks and the common advice that one gives. Here is the insight. If you really listen to the answer and you can look back at your experiences, and I'm sure you'll, 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 you'll conclude that I'm right. The advice that one will tend to give and the advice as a result that one will hear when seeking such advice will tend to address the following observation. You cannot succeed if you fail, i.e. don't fail if you want to succeed. So the advice will be mostly around what to do not to fail or what not to do so you don't fail. Okay? And that's most of the advice. I call it the first level advice that you will get. I call that advice fatal flaw advice, meaning it's the kind of advice that if you don't follow, it becomes a fatal flaw to achieving the outcome you want. And most advice that people will give you will tend to fall in that category fatal flaw. But this is the interesting insight. Indeed, failing will guarantee you don't succeed. But the reverse is not true. Not failing still doesn't guarantee that you succeed. And more interesting, when you succeed, at the end of the day, you will be competing against others. At any stage in your career, you will be competing against other individuals. And once you didn't fail, once you did all the things that made you move to the next stage, you'll be competing with other individuals who had performed the same you did, gotten the same advice, did the right things not to fail. But how do you compete against them? How do you become more successful than them? Not how do you become more successful against people who fail, but how do you become against people more successful with and against people that also succeeded? I defer to the two as the following. The first advice, how not to fail, teaches you how to get into the major league and play in the game. But then there's a, a whole set of advice and insight and teaching and learning and understanding that teaches you how to win games. So it's not just enough to get in the game and have the opportunity, but how do you win the game? So to me, insight focuses on now not how to enter the game and play the game, but how do you win the game? In my language, as I describe it in, in the book, it's telling you how to become not a successful performer, but rather how do you become a top performer, meaning you're the best among the successful ones. And that's basically the focus and the differentiation of this book's attempts to do. And you mentioned earlier on, right, so much about especially through the, you know, through failing, there's, there's a lot of learned experiences there, right? That you just can't necessarily learn uh, through reading a book. But I do also uh, remember you saying that you had gone and, and attained your MBA at Wharton. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, you know, you know, that tends to be a little bit more of a traditional path. Um, how do you think about valuing something like an MBA uh, versus also just kind of maybe foregoing an MBA and getting more hands-on experience to learn and potentially fail and obviously learn through that as well? That, that, that's an interesting question. So one of the chapters in the book, I actually say, uh, and it's a title of the chapter, I believe, you don't have to be a genius to succeed in business. 
And that includes both being a genius in academic environment and the kind of academic environment that, that you attain. So the short answer to your question is, I think one can do well regardless of whether one gets an MBA or doesn't get an MBA. Many different backgrounds can allow one to do well. However, and this is again the insightful perspective that I'll always bring to you. However, there's some value to getting an MBA. So not having an MBA doesn't say you're not gonna become successful. And I would even say, that to become successful, one better have an MBA. Both have fallacy in logic. But what it is true is getting an MBA will give you an advantage upon which you can build to become more successful. So it, it, it's not fatal. It's not a, a necessary and a must, but it's definitely a value add. No, very, very right. You know, I, I know it's an ongoing debate. I think a lot of people are having, especially as they see sort of the, the, the ballooning prices of student debt, as well as, um, you know, just the cost of attendance. But obviously still these prominent MBA programs continue to do well and obviously produce uh, really may talented I, individuals. Yeah, may I comment on that one in particular? Yeah. There are two values to what you receive in an MBA. And they're separate and almost unrelated from one's ability to do well. But they're very important with one's probability to do well. And that will reflect on the comment that you made that's becoming more expensive and therefore it, it, there is a question. Let me separate it. And again, you can see how my mind works, how I think, and therefore you'll find this kind of descriptions throughout the book on practically every topic that deals with career. So the M, going through an MBA gives you two separate dimensions in my mind. It gives you many, but for the purpose of what you ask, there are two completely distinct separate dimensions. The first one is the skills that you learn while you're in the academic environment. Those skills, to me, are secondary in value to getting your MBA. Because if you go and get an MBA in two years, I guarantee you the skills that you end up using when you go to work are maybe 10% of what you learned. So one can argue that you could have gotten for gotten into for a month or two or three months and gotten the exact same skills, whether you went to a two-year MBA program or done it on the work experience or done it elsewhere. So the skill set and then the MBA degree from what it teaches you, one can indeed question whether it's worth the money because you can substitute that. However, the second dimension, it's not this clear-cut answer whether it's substitutable or not. And that is the doors that it opens for you and the opportunity that it gives you to find a better job, to find a good job. So as long as employers, particularly the better ones, use the MBA schools, and particularly the better ones, as a way to offer opportunities because they perceive those schools to offer better candidates, so clearly one would be much better off going to an MBA program, not because of the skill set that they learn, but rather because it opens up opportunities that otherwise might be more difficult to attain. So it, it's a tough question. If you ask me, I would say, yeah, I can teach you everything that Wharton can teach you in, in, in a month and you'll be better off. But on the other hand, I won't be able to give you the platform from which you can find potentially good jobs, which is a precondition to doing well in, in the marketplace. No, absolutely. And, and you, 
when you talk about, you know, especially coming out of, you know, an MBA program, uh, Traditionally, there are certain industries that really heavily rely on post-MBA graduates and obviously have, you know, pretty developed recruiting pipelines into those schools. Uh, I'm curious, you know, given your background primarily in, you know, telecom and some financial services, how does your book sort of adapt maybe to those that are in any industry and whether or not, you know, some of the advice that you provide, you know, is really applicable across all industries or whether or not, you know, it does kind of have a little bit more of a focus on, on any specific industry? Good question. So the book is completely agnostic to the industry. Uh, to me, the book reflects a very simple thing that happens regardless of the industry. And it is that the brain power, the analysis, the ability to dissect business situation, no matter what industry you're in, the biggest part of your job is to dissect problems, opportunities, challenges, evaluate them, come up with good recommendations for any set of circumstances and make the correct judgments. That applies no matter which industry you are in. Then how do you become productive? How do you think properly? And how do you become productive in an environment where your ability to analyze and come up with the correct observation and the correct recommendation is what is held at the highest premium? So the book gives you don'ts and do's list, what you should or should not do as a first level. Uh, things that will make you more or less productive, things that will make you more or less visible, things that will make you more appreciated by your peers and by superiors. It's nothing to do with the industry. It's just the internet dynamics. The second part it will give you is tools as to how do you think, how do you evaluate situation, how do you dissect situation, how do you come up with the right recommendations so that you are more correct, and how do you do it consistently, and the third element, it gives you some very advanced techniques that we, if you follow those techniques, you are much more likely to generate more insightful analysis. So all those three in combination is really the raw material that you need to generate the right analysis and the right recommendation, regardless of what the problem or the challenge or opportunity you're evaluating is. And therefore, it's industry agnostic. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, you know you've, you've spoken so much about and I don't want to paraphrase too much, but you know how to how to view opportunities, how to view problems, and obviously how to set yourself up with a different perspective relative to many other uh, potential employees or or competitors in some instances within a corporation. Right. But I'm also interested, you know, oftentimes so much of people's success is at least perceived to be around relationships and maybe some of the more interpersonal components, which I know you mentioned you kind of struggled with when you put, uh, first came to the United States. Parallel to that, in some regards, is this belief that you need to be a pretty strong networker within an internal company in order to succeed. I'm just kind of curious how, um, you know, how much you speak to uh, in the book. And if not, you know, what some of your recommendations are on some of the personal relationships slash networking side within, you know, your success. That's an excellent question. And it's actually an excellent uh, observation. And the answer is I address it in a book, but in different dimensions. And maybe that will also give you a sense of what I really mean insight and insightfulness is. Again, I'll point to a logic that is commonly used, and I don't mean in a negative way, but we all fall trapped to the same thing. And even in the question, it was implied. And I don't mean negative way. I mean, I do it all the time myself. You said uh, interpersonal skills are very important. So how you deal with people becomes very important. And the answer is, yes, it is. And I don't dismiss it. But you know it, and I know it, and everybody else knows it. 
but is it determinative? If you were a competent with average interpersonal skills and you were an average competency, but with excellent interpersonal skills, which one do you think will increase your probability of becoming more successful? Well, in politics, the latter, but in business, it's the other way around. So having good interpersonal skills help, but they're not determinative, but having good competency and, and, and being right and correct with decision-making and how you evaluate and analyze things will get you much farther. So that's first part of the answer. So I'm not suggesting that having good interpersonal skills are not important, they are. But I'm suggesting you better have other things too, because if you only rely on those, it will take you far in politics, but not necessarily in corporate. So the you eventually get focuses, exposed, right? Yeah. If you're, if you're it's just best a, to a have serial networker, now, you eventually get exposed, right? Now, let me introduce another part, which will be insightful, very insightful in my mind, and the book focuses on it. So I do address the interpersonal skills. I don't, I assume that people will do well on the interpersonal skills, but those are to me the psychological approaches. So the interpersonal skills rely on your ability to influence individuals. And through influencing individuals, you get your way, whichever it is you want to influence them to do something, you want them to like you, or whatever it is that helps your career. But you are focusing on influencing individuals, and everybody would look at that interpersonal skill and influencing, interpreting it, influencing individuals. I have a whole chapter in a book that talks about this is important, but there is something that is even more important than that. And it is not influencing individuals, but influencing outcome. And so what's the difference between influencing individual and influencing outcome? It's a little bit complicated to explain, but the book explains exactly that there is a way that you can learn how to influence outcome. So if you are talking about influencing, my recommendation would be first learn how to influence outcomes. Don't ignore influencing the individual because that can kill you if you don't do it right. But it doesn't lead to success either. So all of those dimensions are important, but look at influence as three dimensions, influencing individuals, influencing outcomes, and having the competency to be able to influence them in the right direction. I'm kind of curious. I, I always think about that, right? Especially as far as influencing an outcome or influencing a decision. Um, but I do believe sometimes that there are probably some unintended consequences where some can find, you know, depending on how it's obviously, you know, you, you, um, you proceed with it. Certainly one could feel as though you are um, working behind their back to kind of change a decision maybe that they believe should be made. I'm kind of curious how you sort of think about navigating that while staying on, let's say, the, the right side of the, of the fence in terms of not, you know, undermining or, or going behind someone's back who maybe could have more seniority than you or, or any other dynamics within the office? Right. It, 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 you're asking some very, very good questions. Thank you. So, so the answer is actually very simple. I wouldn't recommend you do what you just suggested as a challenge. I would suggest that to me, influencing outcome is still influencing them without going around the back, without mm -hmm. stabbing them back, without doing something inappropriate. I'm suggesting, and if you read the book, you will get the sense, there still is a way by doing everything in a positive way and still influence the outcome. I'm not suggesting that you will be successful all the time, 
I'm suggesting there is a good probability that you'll increase the opportunity to be more successful if you think about how do you influence an outcome. I would not recommend you do something that can come back to bite you. That is definitely not my part of definition. But whereas you think you need to do something that will stab somebody in the back, whereas you think you need to do something that may come back to bite you, I'll suggest with a little bit of insight and a little bit of awareness, you can find a way that avoids that problem, but still gives you the gain and the benefits of influencing the outcome. Now, very helpful. I'll apply that to my own career too. The next thing I want to talk about was a little bit, and we talked about this, you know, as we were kind of getting set up here, you know, the workplace has evolved so much. And obviously, you know, new technologies and new dynamics within the workplace were accelerated in 2020 and into this year. You're now seeing people in more remote environments. You're seeing people where in situations where communications can get blurred without proper tone because everyone's, you know, working in either a digital environment or just via, you know, instant messaging and emails, maybe in ways that they had in the past. How do you feel as though those shifts in kind of workplace dynamics impact or influence in any way your book and sort of how you think someone or what, what the tools are people need to think about in order to succeed in the future kind of workplace? I, I understand. So a couple of points. I don't believe that the different environment changes the value of what the book gives you because what the book suggests and what the changing environment does it has more impact on the one dimension that we spoke about earlier that you brought up is the interpersonal skills. So the difference in the work environment, the remote work environment, the visual work environment, the camera instead of the, uh, the personal interactions, that has greater impact on the interpersonal skills, on the development of the interpersonal skills. And now it will definitely affect the uh, uh, efficacy of that and how do you do that? Because remotely, it's much more difficult to do than, than in person. However, the other dimension that I suggested deal purely with how correct are you and how able you are to influence, not through interpersonal skills, but through logic and through process that makes sense. And therefore, that is independent of the median or where you are, whether you're in person or across the camera. As long as you communicate things in a way that, are, that influence others, as long as you are correct in your analysis and how you portray things, you will be recognized as a top performer, regardless of whether you sit in person around the group or less. So actually, the book becomes more important because the interpersonal skill dimension becomes less important. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. You know, we're, we're getting close to running up on time here. I, I do have a couple more questions for you. Um, one of which is, you know, obviously you had great success, you know, earlier in your career, as you mentioned, in management consulting. Obviously, you then went in-house and eventually worked, you know, sort of as a VC investor. So I'm curious on the VC side, so venture capital investing. Um, one, what drew you towards making the jump over to VC investing? And then two, you know, what do you think are some of the traits that make someone stand out in VC investing relative maybe in a more corporate world? So what made me make the jump is doing exactly the kind of analysis that I'm hoping the book will allow everybody else to do. I looked at myself and I asked myself, what are my strengths and weaknesses relative to my own career aspirations? And most people, when they do, and the book talks about it in detail, when they do an analysis of strengths and weaknesses, the book will argue that most of the times it's not done, not done all that well. And if one does it better, one will get much better result. So first I applied the same kind of a thinking on my own 
developing my own strategy. And I came up with what I thought were my strengths and what my weaknesses were. And my strength, I came up with the fact that I'm able to analyze things based on my experience, my background and everything else. But my weaknesses were exactly the things that you mentioned, the interpersonal skills, the inability to articulate things and, and uh, those kind of things. So I realized the venture capital industry just started and I realized that if I made the change and I become a venture capitalist, then all my weaknesses, all the interpersonal skills, how I come across become irrelevant because there's only one criteria that people will measure you by and they'll forgive everything else. If you are able to provide good returns, if you are able to make good investment decisions, they'll forgive everything else. So great, I wanted, an, I wanted to succeed in an environment that my weaknesses completely disappeared and I play mostly on my strengths. So that's what made, caused me to make the change. The truth of the matter is, it also looked like a wonderful, lucrative opportunity at the time. <laughs> I wouldn't have done the same. I hope it turned out correct. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. In terms of the difference between being a good venture capitalist versus being a, a good in corporate environment, this same observation is the real differentiation. In the corporate environment, there is no black and white answer. Rarely you have one solution. Rarely there is one way where you are proven to be right or wrong. Most of the time, it's decision-making, there are trade-offs, there is risk-reward analysis, and the results are always in retrospect. The only exception tends to be in technical work or in sales people because you either closed the sale or you didn't close the sales, all right? The, without those exceptions, there is no black and white. In the venture couple world, there is black and white. At the end of the day, your career and you, uh, how people perceive you and how well you will do will depend on your ability to have made the right decisions. It's no longer on your ability to sell people on making right decision, the proof is subsequent. And, and that is different dimensions. You cannot be two times right and five times wrong uh, in a venture capital business, whereas in the corporate environment, you could very well be because you never owned this, the, the end result. So you, you make a decision now in a corporate world, you move on to another position, another position, you never live with a, with a consequence of whether your decision was right or wrong. That's not the case in the venture capital world. In the venture capital world, your decision will either give you credit or will come to haunt you. And that means you need to be much more thorough, much more correct, and much more, more black and white in making decisions when you're a venture capitalist than when you're in a corporate world. I've got one more question on, on this front. It actually was around the way you described uh, understanding your own strengths and weaknesses. And you know that takes a lot of self-awareness. And obviously, you can run you know, a SWOT analysis and make it very mechanical. But for the most part, I think there's something more about self-awareness and self-reflection that I think probably really plays into allowing you to have honest conversations with yourselves around your strengths and weaknesses and trying to figure out ways to take advantage of strengths and maybe hide some of your weaknesses. Um, so I'm just kind of curious on that front, like how often do you feel people are self-aware enough about their strengths and weaknesses? And maybe are there any exercises that they could do to take away from this podcast as far as ways to think about you know, yourself, maybe in the present terms, in ways that you're not currently. Right. So I would recommend if, if people would be curious and we look at the book, I would recommend a specific chapter that specifically talks about evaluating strengths and weaknesses. And there are two parts to that. One is what you call self-awareness, meaning 
you you are honest with yourself you can evaluate yourself well and you ask that question and i'll tell you most people don't do it all that well and i can go into the the uh, the detail as to why but that's separate but that's only one aspect of it the other aspect is and this is the insight that i'll give you now and i'll give and then i give in a book there is no such thing as strengths and weaknesses in absolute terms strengths and weaknesses a strength could be a strength in one set of circumstances, but a weakness in a different set of circumstances. So before you analyze strengths or weaknesses of anything, business situation, product situation, competitive situation, or your own situation, you need to come up with another determination ahead of time. What are the key success factors that will get you to where you want to get? Once you determine that, then you can measure whether you have strengths and weaknesses relative to those. So where people go wrong with the self-assessment is not that they're not brutally honest with themselves, is that they apply the wrong key success factors by which they measure the strengths and weaknesses. Either one, whether you're not honest with yourself and you don't see yourself well, or if you measure it relative to the wrong milestones that will get you and lend you to the right things, either one, you came up with the wrong set self-assessment. Both are important to do it. Uh, that's great. So my last question to you is just uh, what, you know, with, with all this knowledge that you've, you know, expressed and written uh, in Remarkable, what's next? What's the next book? <laughs> I, think, I think my daughter is pushing me to, you know, go for the next book. It's tough to write a book, particularly when you talk about insightfulness, because it's difficult to explain insightfulness. It's difficult to explain it in a way that it makes sense. In order to explain insightfulness, you first need to explain the common understanding and then contrast it to insightfulness. Because if I gave you the answer, it would be self-evident. It would be obvious because at the end of the day, insightfulness is obvious. If it weren't obvious, it would end up being insightful because you disagreed with it. Uh, so the next book, if I were to write a book and when I'm to write a book, it would be probably focused on a couple of definitions. One is specific insightfulness in the venture capital industry, which comes from different perspectives. It comes from the perspectives of a venture capitalist, uh, how to do well as a venture capitalist, how do you decide what to invest in and what not to invest in. Another perspective is a perspective from entrepreneur. How do you build a successful company? Whether you use or don't use venture capitalists, it's still the dynamics of building a, a successful enterprise from, from the bottom up as a lot of different insights. And the third thing is perhaps some advice to, to the higher level management, which the higher level you are, the CEO level, the president level, the VP level, you feel that you have kind of gotten all the knowledge and all the wisdom that you have has proven that the fact that you are successful. And I suggest that you probably, in my opinion, a lot of people could improve. So focusing on helping the higher level management, even though the book does to some extent, this now it doesn't focus on that. It focuses more on the earlier stage career, but focusing on the top executive, because I sat on tens and dozens and dozens of boards. I hired and fired CEOs at all levels. I see. I saw companies struggling with strategies and implementation all along. And, and, and I've seen some good CEOs and some bad CEOs, some good uh, practices for men, top management, some bad practices. So that would be probably the three different focuses. Well, that's very exciting. We're, we're, we're looking forward to you uh, putting pen to paper and, uh, and releasing that book, hopefully uh, in the not too distant future. But so, David, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. This was great. I, I thought it was really insightful uh, to take a word from you. And for everyone else to listen to other episodes of The Yield, please visit and subscribe to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. 
For any questions on YieldTree, please feel free to visit www.yieldtree.com or email us at investments at yieldtree.com. Thanks so much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.